Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Out of methodological necessity, critical scholarship cannot accept uh, real prophecy, uh, at least in my opinion. Which means that, no, if the text says there's this dude named Cyrus, that text was written after that dude named Cyrus was on the scene. Hey, everybody, I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of that pernicious misinformation about the same. Uh, how go things, Dan? Uh, things go well. Uh, we, we're going to kill some foliage today. We're going to. All right. Mur- we're going to murder a tree, uh, among other <laughs> things. So that's exciting. That's always fun. Yeah. Uh, and and I I have high hopes that you'll uh, help me to understand what what the heck's going on with that story. So that's where we're going to start out. We're going to start out with a chapter and verse on that. Awesome. And then you're going to tell us, you're going to help us out with a what does that mean? Because mm-hmm. I have heard you use the phrase Deutero-Isaiah before, and I have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. So that'll be fun to uh to get that all covered. Yeah, that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. It's something that has been controversial for a long time. So uh we'll clear the air a little bit and explain what's going on with that. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's start with chapter and verse. And we're picking up uh I guess in in Mark 11. Is that where we want to pick up? Uh, yeah, Mark's the earliest gospel, so uh, scholars are in widespread agreement that this is the earliest iteration of this story. Now, okay. it's likely that there is some tradition that pre-existed the gospel of Mark. There might even be some sayings in an earlier sayings gospel that Mark might have used as a source, but uh, the, early, the first access we have to this story is in Mark 11. I gotta say, I feel like... <laughs> Whatever the precursor things that Mark was drawing on, they must have made more sense than this. Because I <laughs> am wildly confused by this story. Uh, should we just dive in? Like, okay, so here's what happens. Uh, Jesus has just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a whole thing about him riding in on a colt and people throwing down leaves in front of him and all this sort of stuff. Right. And then uh, the next day, Jesus is out for a walk and sees a fig tree in the distance. Uh, it's got leaves on it. He meanders over there. It is not the time. It is not the season for figs. Right. Uh, this, fi- this, this fig tree is not uh, fruiting currently. Mm-hmm. And J- Jesus talks to it, which I think is weird, uh, and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Uh, and then and they, then they take off. Um, which I feel like 
vindictiveness against a tree is odd. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't, and I, and okay. So, so there's that, that's, that's part one. Yeah. Then there's this whole thing uh, where Jesus, and we, we remember that Jesus cleanses the temple, right? So, right. Uh, Jesus, you know, there's several, several uh, verses where Jesus goes into and, and turns over the table of the money changers and scolds mm-hmm. the people who are buying and selling things. And, mm-hmm. Uh, makes some very people very angry, and they they try they want to kill him, and then that's that's that little thing, and then we're back to the tree. Yeah. So picking up in verse twenty, uh, they go the next morning. Uh, the the disciples go back to the tree, and it has withered away to its roots. And Peter said to him, "Hey." Uh, look, the the fig tree that you cursed has withered, and Jesus says, "Have faith in God." No, okay. Ha- he says, "Have faith in God." I'll just read it. Truly, I tell yeah. you that if you say to this mountain, "Be taken up and thrown into the sea," and you do not doubt in your heart, but you believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, uh, I can see saying, you know, if they're amazed by what he did to the fig tree, uh, yes, I can see how how it follows to say, you know, you can make, you can move mountains uh, if you believe. Why did he kill a fig tree? I'm so confused by this. So, so get, walk us through the whole thing. I'm, I'm, I. The whole thing just baffles me a little bit. It's a bit of a yeah. head scratcher. So, what we've got here is uh, one of Mark's uh, sandwich stories, where we have uh, kind of the introduction and the conclusion, and in between we have a separate story. But usually, these stories are um, kind of bookending whatever's in between and all, and they relate to each other. And so the fig tree is a metaphor. Um, surprise, surprise. Right. <laughs> and uh, we hear talk in the, in the New Testament and elsewhere in the Bible, this notion of bearing fruit and particularly in relation to Jesus, this has to do with good works. This has to do with producing results, uh, doing the things that are expected uh, of you. And uh, we have right before uh, they go and see the withered tree is the threat that we see in verse 18. And I, uh, I, I finally got the digital version of the updated edition of the NRSV. So I'm, I'm up to date now. And, here, and it says in, in verse 18, when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And he's just gone into the temple And the temple is not bearing fruit. Mm. The temple has become, in the eyes of Jesus, through the eyes of of the gospel authors, a den of thieves. The chief priests, who are supposed to be the ecclesiastical authority of the day, the scribes, who are supposed to be the learned men of uh, the Jewish tradition, are also not bearing fruit. They're trying to kill their Messiah. 
And so this is a metaphor for Jerusalem, for the temple, for the Jewish leadership. He shows up as the Messiah. He's been up north. He's been in Galilee doing his thing. And he comes down to Jerusalem to enter triumphantly into his city. There are leaves everywhere. And he wants fruit. And they have none to offer him. And this is one of the indications that Mark was written when either the destruction of the temple was imminent or had already happened. Mm. Because the idea here with the cursing of the fig tree is Jesus says, hey, I showed up looking for fruit. I didn't see any. Guess what? Boom, roasted. No more fruit ever. And this is a symbol or this represents the destruction of the temple, the scattering of uh, the leadership of early Judaism. Now, later on, toward the end of the first century CE and into the second and third century CE, we're going to have the development of rabbinic Judaism, which is going to be carrying on the Pharisaic tradition. It's organizing around the traditions that are going to develop then. But when Mark is written, somewhere around 70 CE, either immediately before or shortly after the destruction of the temple, they have no understanding that that Judaism is going to come back together and organize uh, and carry on. And so from the perspective of the author of the Gospel of Mark, the tree is cursed and has withered. The temple is gone. Uh, the idea is basically, yeah, that's never bearing fruit again. Um, yeah, I see your problem. It's, you know, you know you're cursed. Uh, you're not going to bear any fruit ever again. And, uh, but... This is an issue because uh, Jesus' followers are, at this point in time, all Jewish folks. And so it's kind of frightening. Well, what's going to happen now? Right. And the, you know, look, the tree has withered from its roots. The temple is gone. The leadership is gone. And so the response from Jesus is, have faith in God. And then goes on um, to explain that through their faith, they can accomplish uh, all these great things. So they're going to be able to move mountains going forward. They don't need those things that were not bearing fruit. Uh, and it, it says uh, that when Jesus went looking for the figs, it was not yet the time for them um, to be bearing fruit. And so he shouldn't have expected to find fruit on there. So it seems a little um, a little callous for him to go zap. Yeah. Um, because it wasn't doing anything wrong. Right, right. Um, it's, it's not fig season. Yeah. The tree's like, I'm just, I'm, what? What I'm did doing, I do to you? I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be. <laughs> I, I think of Steve Martin in his little mask in uh, a Little Shop of Horrors with the little bubbles filling up with air and then <laughs> empty and going, what did I ever do to you? <laughs> and then Jesus goes, it's not what you did to me. It's what you did to her. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's, in in my opinion, this is Mark's kind of like Jesus is is killed at the Passover in March slash April, which is too early for the fig season. So he's like, well, I got to get it in there somehow. Um, <laughs> he's, so so uh, in my opinion, he's uh, he's just fitting the story in where he can. Uh, although uh, there are some scholars who will argue that. Um, 
that Jesus's uh, arrival showing up to uh, Jerusalem is is before the messianic uh, fulfillment is supposed to take place, but I don't I don't know about those those timelines. But in short, this is this is a uh, a metaphor. This is uh, condemning the the scribes and the uh, and the high priests, uh, the chief the, priests, the dove sellers. Yeah. The money changers. Uh, this is condemning the leadership there in Jerusalem for not bearing the fruit that uh, should be uh, expected. Hmm. And then saying, but don't worry, we don't need them because you're going to have power to do all these things moving forward. Okay. I mean, to me, that make, yeah, that makes more sense. Talk- A little bit, but it is unique. It is the only miracle of Jesus's that is destructive. Yeah. Where and, he's and like, very much out. so, and just yeah, it just feels mean to <laughs> to a tree that ain't did nothing just to just just to be a metaphor. Well, uh, and yeah, I don't know how they thought about the personhood of trees uh, anciently. Um, I mean, they obviously use Jesus referencing it in the second person, yeah, uh, kind of like look what you made me do, um, but. <laughs> Uh, but I don't know if they had sympathy for uh, for trees back yeah. then. But yeah, that's what a, a lot of people these days are like. The tree didn't do nothing to you. And that, then, it doesn't and then make when sense. The, when they asked Jesus if he had cut down the tree, he said, "I cannot tell a lie." <laughs> is there talk a little bit about the temple? Because if this is a mm-hmm. metaphor, is it a metaphor for the temple, or is it a metaphor for sort of Judaism as as a as a whole? Uh, it's both and. It's okay. it's encapsulating uh, the temple and the people running the temple and the other folks who are supposed to be representative of of the best of uh, of Judaism of that day. And so there is there is an anti it's kind of anti clerical and anti Jewish uh, all at the same time. Uh, they rejected Jesus. They rejected their Messiah, uh, according to the authors of uh, the Gospels. And so. Uh, this is the author's opportunity to to take a little rhetorical jab back at them and say you're like a withered tree. Yeah, suck it. <laughs> is the temp? You know, we've talked about the temple, about the destruction of the temple, mm-hmm. um, but we've never really dug into what the temple was about. What happened in the temple? Clearly there's commerce going on there. Mm -hmm. Is it a building? Is it an area? What is the temple? (laughs) Well, by by the time of of Jesus's day, we have the second temple. Uh, The first temple was destroyed in 587 uh, BCE by the Babylonians and was rebuilt uh, about 70 years later. Uh, and this is when, uh, according to the biblical text, uh, Cyrus the Great allows the Judahites, uh, after conquering Babylon, who had taken them captive, Cyrus the Great allows them to go back and allows them to rebuild their temple. And so the second temple, um, also referred to as the Temple of Zerubbabel, uh, was rebuilt. It was probably uh, on a smaller scale, not as grand uh, as it was before, and later on, this gets supplemented even further 
during the uh, Hasmonean kingdom. So when the Maccabees run off the uh, Seleucids who have come in and have desecrated the temple and have destroyed parts of it, they're rebuilding parts of it. And then the Romans come in and they annex Judea, and then they put a client king in charge of Judea, um, Herod the Great. And he rules for decades. And part of what he does is engages in these large-scale um, building projects. He wants to build up cities. He wants to create new uh, centers of commerce and culture, uh, like Caesarea Maritima. And he wants to expand uh, the temple. And so the temple complex was a large courtyard enclosed uh, in walls that had gates in it. And then inside, you would have had the the temple proper, which had a, a, a courtyard and an inner sanctum, and then the Holy of Holies. So it's what's known as a tripartite temple. And they have, um, there are a few different styles of, uh, of temple in, in that time period, but significantly expands that courtyard to the south, uh, which requires building um, a bunch of underground supports so that it can extend out over a hill that's actually going down quite a bit. Mm. And if one visits Jerusalem today, there are parts of the wall that was constructed by Herod, which is characterized by, by what's called um, ashlar masonry, where they have uh, they kind of create a kind of textured look. Uh, for the face of the stone, but then there's a there's a trim around the outside that is cut smooth, uh, and so if you go there, you can see some of the lower levels of the the wall, particularly on the south, that are re- remains of uh, Herod's temple, but it was rebuilt uh, to some degree in later periods. Not the temple itself, but just the uh, the platform and and the walls and things. And and I think one of the coolest parts of the the whole temple complex that you can still see today. Uh, if you go to uh, what's known as the Robinson Center, it's the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. You can see uh, the southwest corner. You can see some of the layers of uh, of the wall as constructed by Herod, and you can see large uh, sections of the wall scattered around the base of that wall, as well as the uh, the sidewalk, the the base that is cratered in because when the Romans destroyed the temple, one of the things they did was had their soldiers push a lot of the stones off of the top of the wall mm. and they came tumbling down and just cratered the the stone sidewalk and, and platform area below. And so when you go visit, you can actually see these craters in the stone and then the all the pieces of... Uh, uh, of large stone uh, scattered all around. And so you can kind of, there's just enough cues there to give you a sense of this just enormous destructive force and to hmm. imagine what uh, what would have happened at the time. And this is something that um, the historian Josephus personally witnessed. Um, oh, wow. And so, and so w- when you read some of uh, Josephus's history, he talks in some detail uh, about what went on during the uh, the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, and and so does this... he talk about the fig tree situation at all? <laughs> I think he overlooks the the fig tree. <laughs> this is happening uh, <clears throat> ostensibly. This is happening uh, decades after 
uh, Jesus's life and death. So the fig tree, if it had been withered at some point, somebody came along and went, we got to get this thing out of the way. Um, and so I don't know how big it was, probably not incredibly big. They probably could have just yanked it out by hand. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, Mark is not the only place that we find this story. We also find it in Matthew. It it feels like it gets a little bit more uh, streamlined in Matthew. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not separated. It's not sandwiched, as you say, uh, mm-hmm. as Mark and that Mark did. So this is uh, Matthew twenty one, um, and and ba- basically it's it, it just has the story, and it all happens at the same time. Uh, it's not. It it doesn't have the uh, intervening day. It just says yeah. that uh, that Jesus saw the tree in the morning, said, "May no fruit ever come from you ever again." And then uh, the fig tree withers right there in front of them. You know, it's, it's basically the same thing. Uh, and you know, the disciples are saying, "Wow, that's amazing!" And he says, "If you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree." Uh, but even if you say to the mountain, be lifted. Here's the thing. Um, nobody ever does the mountain thing. Yeah. And none of the disciples ever seem to be able to do the the fig tree trick either. Uh, <laughs> it it feels like, I mean, okay, the, I guess part of me, when I read the, uh, you'll be able to move mountains if you have enough faith thing. Mm-hmm. If it's in the context of a story that is metaphor, I'm much more comfortable with it because he's speaking metaphorically. Yeah. But so many people have attempted crazy things, believing that their faith would be enough to, uh, to make it happen or to keep them safe or whatever. Can we just make it the, uh, the policy of the data over dogma podcast that you should not try things that are physically impossible. Even (laughs) if your faith is really, really strong. Yeah, yeah. The um, as Jesus <laughs> said, uh, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And uh, frequently, 
people try it in context that render what they're doing tempting to mm. God. They're they're trying um, like trying to say, oh, I'm gonna you know, whatever ends up, uh, you know, people have died because they've done silly things, believing that uh, that God was gonna save them, uh, and which is really inviting a sign. Uh, tempting God, exactly as uh, Jesus said when he was like, yeah, jump jump off the temple. Come on, man. You can do it. Everybody in, else is doing it. Um, in fairness, though, it does seem like Jesus is saying here, if you if you have faith and do not doubt, you can just do anything. Yeah. So that I, seems like it's in conflict with, with the don't tempt <laughs> God. But again, you must see this as a metaphor. Yeah. Well, and and... You know, Matthew has Jesus saying things that conflict with themselves, um, as do the other gospel authors. And I would argue that Matthew probably does, because Matthew's like, hey, you can do the same thing as I just did to this fig tree and other things as well. Um, but wait, there's more. Anything. <laughs> um, and so it seems to me that the Matthew has kind of uh, missed some of the metaphorical message that Mark was was using, uh, or at least understands it in a different way, because I think the message is a little harder to to get from here than it is from the Gospel of Mark. And so it seems like it's a story that Matthew was like, "Well, we got to include this silly little story. We're going <laughs> to work this in here." Yeah, um, and he but- didn't, and he didn't want to to um, split it up with the cleansing of the temple like Mark did. And so he has to have it happen immediately. Right. He's just like zap. And then immediately the tree desiccates and, and withers up. Yeah. Which makes for an even more peculiar story. Yeah. Um, Cause the, and the disciples are not like, why the hell did you do that? <laughs> what, <laughs> um, uh, point of order. Why, why did you yeah, kill yeah, the tree? <laughs> Luke does an interesting thing. He, I, I think, by the time this gets around to Luke, is Luke after Matthew? Uh, mo- I think most scholars would probably say Luke is after Matthew. Yes, because in Luke- fact, in fact, more and more scholars are arguing that Luke may be early second century. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Because uh, Luke skips Jesus killing the fig tree altogether, but has a fig tree moment. Yeah. He has a parable of a It's just tree. a vibe at this point. It's yeah, at this a- point, it's just, it's just like, it, I mean, and Jesus isn't even involved, and and it's very clearly a parable. It's labeled as a parable, which is nice. Like, when you, you know, when something's, in, when something's labeled as a metaphor, as opposed to just like, I'm saying this metaphor, maybe you'll get it, maybe you won't. Uh, but yeah, uh, the parable of the fig tree is much more, it's about... A guy who plants a fig tree, it doesn't ever, it, you know, for three years, it doesn't bear fruit. Dude's pissed off. He says, you know, why, I love the idea of why should it be wasting soil? Uh, and then uh, a, a dude says, give it another year. Uh, I'm going to dig around. I'm going to do some, put some manure on it. Uh, if it bears fruit next year, that's good. If not, you can cut it down. Mm-hmm. I I don't know what that's a parable for. Do you? Well, I I think we still I think this is a little more clearly a, a metaphorical reference to the house of Israel bearing okay. fruit for yep. God. However, yeah, it's 
Uh, Luke's probably like these idiots. Um, they're not. <laughs> they're not going to get this. Uh, and and probably also he was, was thinking of to, me. Luke was thinking <laughs> of me. I appreciate it. And was probably also wanting to distance Jesus from a destructive act. Doesn't yeah. want to represent Jesus as doing this uh, because the the tradition of Jesus has developed a little bit more. Jesus is probably a little more lovey dovey by this time period. Luke is certainly one who's who's on uh, more concerned for the the more vulnerable and marginalized of society. He's championing women and he's championing. Uh, the Gentiles more, and so I think he's probably like, we don't want to hurt no little tree. Let's just, we'll uh, we'll put it in a parable, so it's not even uh, history. It's just uh, metaphor explicitly. Um, but well, and they don't represent them destroying it. I mean, and that, it's the that's first the end time. It. It's the first time we get the idea of like, let's try to make this okay. Let's let's see if we can actually like salvage this tree and have it bring fruit, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting because the other two are just like, Oh no fruit. You're dead forever. <laughs> and then it looks like there's uh the infancy gospel of Thomas, which is one of the, one of the Gnostic uh, gospels probably written in the mid to late second century CE has a, a quotation. Um, Behold, now you also shall be withered like a tree and shall not bear leaves or nor root nor fruit. What so, is uh, going on with the trees in ancient <laughs> Southwest Asia that they are withering? I don't see that many withered trees. Do you see withered tree? Anyway, go on. Well, you have, I'm, I'm trying to remember where this is, but I think you have fi- figurative language where, um, you know, fruit can also, in addition to being a reference to like good works and productivity and and progress and things like that, can also be used to refer to offspring and mm-hmm. descendants. Sure. And so, a withered tree or a withered root or something like that is somebody who does not have any any children, any offspring. Shooting so, blanks. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. If if you want to get clinical about it, I think that's the technical <laughs> term. Um, but I'm trying to think of a. Uh, there's there's a reference somewhere to somebody being like a, a withered tree. Um, and, I'm just um, saying they're using this metaphor a lot, and it just seems like maybe the trees there were uh, were not doing great. <laughs> Horticulturally, <laughs> well, there, it seems like they need arborists. In uh, the, there were not a ton place. of trees in the area. Uh, the soil is pretty rocky. For one, uh, and historically, there were there were a lot of trees further north. Um, you know, the cedars of Lebanon, for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people are familiar with that. But those, a lot of those trees were there was a lot of deforestation. A lot of those trees were used in earlier periods, and so by the time of the first century CE, there was not really a ton for them. And this is why a lot of scholars think that Jesus wouldn't have been a carpenter but a stonemason or something like that, because the wood would have been at quite a premium. And so most of the construction and things like that would have been in stone. And you even have right around this time period within Judaism, the use of stone utensils, like stone cups and pots and things like that, um, is for a brief period very popular. But this has to do primarily with purity, uh, because stone, unlike clay, would not transmit or uh, maintain or retain impurities. So um, a clay dish 
if it was rendered impure, it would transmit the impurity to whatever was in it. But stone would, the impurities would bounce off and then um, whatever was put into it could be purified. Uh, so, so stone was more important than wood in that time period, um, in part because trees were not abundant. Although you do have a lot of uh, olive trees in the area. In fact, in the, the story in uh, Mark and in Matthew, he's spending the night in Bethany, which is down the valley, up the Mount of Olives, and kind of um, heading on to the other side of the Mount of Olives uh, is Bethany. So. Mm. It's, it doesn't say where exactly this fig tree is, but if he was going from Bethany to Jerusalem, it might have been located overlooking the uh, what's called the Kidron Valley, and so it would have been directly opposite the temple um, on the other side. Which there is, you, uh, there's a, you can go there today, there's like a lookout point, like a, um, a platform and a, and a railing and a place where people go to take pictures uh, because you have the... Uh, the Dome of the Rock and the Temple Mount, uh, directly opposite. All right. Yeah. There you go. Uh, it's a lovely Jesus, area. And and Jesus said unto them, this is good for Insta if you guys want to <laughs> stop. Get your phones out. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, they, I love- they were living in the now. They were living in the moment back <laughs> then. Right. It was, uh, let's kill this tree rather yeah. than uh, let's I love the idea that, uh, I love that you pointed out that he was, theoretically a carpenter because you would think that a carpenter would have more respect for a tree at very least don't wither it you know cut it down make something out of it have something yeah, you know yeah um, make a nice box or something honor it honor um, it turn it into something uh productive give it right. a second life that's right uh but yeah and then yeah every every time i think of jesus as a carpenter all i can think of is that's the cup of a carpenter <laughs> Well, yeah, there you go. All right. Well, thanks for that. The story now makes some sense to me. I'm going to I'm going to give it I'm going to allow it to have some sense. It's not it's not maybe meaningful, but um it is <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean not not to me. I It's I, coherent. Yeah. I had I I have no uh per- personal what am I trying to say? Like connection <laughs> to the temple, but Yeah. Or or to like the structure of Judaism or Israel at the time, but I get it. So that being said, let's move on to uh, to what does that mean? What's that mean? Dun, dun, dun. We're talking about Deutero Isaiah uh, for this segment, and Deutero. Uh, I'm in. Uh, if you speak modern Greek, you're thinking Deftero. But uh, Deutero-Isaiah means second Isaiah, basically. And this is a theory that sees the book of Isaiah as a multi-stage composition, as something that came together over a long period of time, not just the work of one author, but of at least two. And the theory, the main theory, uh, has three authors. They call them first Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah. Uh, and Deutero-Isaiah is the more common designation for 2nd Isaiah. And this runs from Isaiah 40 to 55. Okay. So, so Isaiah, Isaiah as a book uh, in the in the uh, the Hebrew Bible goes to mm-hmm. chapter 66. So 66. There's a, there's a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just full of movie references today. But, <laughs> you are, um, man. 
Um, when you said 66, I thought it was six, 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 60, six, 66 times, which is, um, you don't you know lost that me one? on that one. Okay. That's the great outdoors. Oh yeah. So when, uh, how many I, times you've been struck by lightning? <laughs> 66 times. Okay. Right. So, so yeah, the, um, Isaiah is a prophet, uh, writing in the mid to late Eighth uh, century into the seventh century BCE, okay. so would have been a prophet that uh, was there in the court to see the reigns of of a couple different kings. But Hezekiah is the main king that is so, that is associated with Hezekiah. And uh, with, do we believe me, even even let's just say, let's just say that we're going to accept for for purposes of this argument or of this discussion the Deutero Isaiah theory. Do we mm-hmm. believe that the first part of Isaiah was actually written by a dude named Isaiah? Yes. Okay. Yes. Critical scholarship is in agreement that there was a dude named Isaiah okay. who probably was a, a court prophet um, for perhaps uh, King Hezekiah. Now, uh, we see some stuff about, uh, so Isaiah would have been um, ministering, um, prophetizing, uh, however you want to say that, uh, that's not correct, but um, that's what came <laughs> it's, out. It's good enough by me. <laughs> uh, in uh, before the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, around the year 722 BCE at the hands of the Assyrians, and then would have been around for Sennacherib's invasion of the northern kingdom and then um, siege of Jerusalem, which ultimately was called off, leaving Hezekiah to declare victory. Uh, even though in the Sennacherib prism, uh, an Akkadian text written a little bit later, Sennacherib crows about having trapped Hezekiah in his capital city like a bird in a cage. But Isaiah, for a long time, people have noticed there seem to be different segments of Isaiah. You have chapters 1 through 12 talking about judgment and salvation for Israel and for Judah, Chapters 13 to 27 are a bunch of uh, oracles against the nations or woes. You have 10 woe untos that that run from chapter 13 to chapter 23. Chapters 24 through 27 represent Isaiah's um, kind of apocalypse. Uh, We have chapters 28 through 35, which we come back to some woes, but they're leading up to the Sennacherib narrative. And then chapters 36 through 39 are the Sennacherib slash Hezekiah narrative. So we're um, kind of zooming in on the story that's told in uh, 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, where Sennacherib comes up against Jerusalem uh, and lays siege to it. And we have a slightly different telling of how that all went. And then we have chapters 40 through 55, Deutero-Isaiah. And this tells the story of the fall of Babylon and the restoration of Zion. And then chapters 56 through 66 kind of represent a concentric arrangement where you have the earliest and the latest chapters uh, talking about gathering uh, the people to God's holy mountain. And then you move into next latest and next earliest chapters. There are complaints uh, about the nature of the deliverance, and there's a divine response, and then you move in, there's a theophany to punish the wicked, and then the very center of this concentric arrangement is uh, about restoration, the restoration of Israel. And around uh, the year 1800, scholars began to take seriously this notion that 
there were multiple authors responsible for what we know as the book of Isaiah, and that at least a part of it was probably written during the exilic period. So centuries after the historical Isaiah would have lived and preached and prophetized. Um, and this is thanks to uh, to a series of Johans. Uh, so <laughs> Johann Benjamin Coppa, Johann Christoph Döderlein, and Johann Gottfried Eichhorn uh, are authors in the uh, late 18th century who are kind of developing a theory of, hey, some of this looks like it's coming from uh, a later time period. And then we have a, a scholar named Bernhard Doom in 1892 who published a, a commentary and argued for a first, a second, and a third Isaiah. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely. That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of and get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Talk about the the clues that led yeah. the, to these conclusions. And this is important because a lot of people think that there's this uh, kind of cynicism about authorship where critical scholars are like, I'm beginning from the presupposition that none of this happened and none of this was written by who uh, claims to have written it. And this just simply is not the case. This is um, critical scholars coming to the text, accepting it, um, at face value until given a reason not to. So these earliest scholars weren't like, um, you know, every chance I get to say something is not Isaiah, I'm going to, I'm going to say it. Cause the first people were like, oh, it's just chapter 50 and it's just chapter 42 and it's just chapters 13 through 16 that seem like they were probably written by somebody much later. And then the, the theory gets refined and the theory gets refined and the theory gets refined. But the biggest division is between Isaiah 1 through 39 
and Isaiah 40 through the rest of Isaiah. Because here's something interesting. Isaiah's name is mentioned over a dozen times in chapters 1 through 39. The word of the Lord, which came to Isaiah, the son of Amos, and the Lord said to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to Hezekiah, and all this. And you have it uh, occurring like four times in Isaiah 37, three times in Isaiah 38, three times in Isaiah 39, and his name is never mentioned again. Mm. In 40 through 66, there's no reference to Isaiah at all. So... One thing, the language is shifts, uh, the topics shift, and the time frame seems to shift because Isaiah 1 through 39 are talking about the future destruction of Israel by Babylon. It is prophesying about this. This is coming, this is coming, this is coming. I'm prophesying that this is coming. And then you get to verse or chapter 40, and all of a sudden we're no longer prophesying. It's now saying that happened, that happened, that happened. It's in the mm. past. It's not the prophetic perfect. It's not this uh, speaking about it uh, with such confidence that you speak about it as if it already happened. They're just saying, hey, this thing happened. None of it's speaking prophetically. None of it is attributing anything to Isaiah. It is all talking about here's how we are picking up the pieces and here is what's, uh, what's coming. And so uh, scholars are like, what do we do with this? We got to figure something out. And then you have some other, you have some other clues. So uh, Isaiah 45 calls Cyrus the Great, explicitly refers to Cyrus by name, Mm. who is someone who conquered Babylon, the Persian emperor who conquered Babylon in the year 539 BCE. So a good 200 years after Isaiah and it says uh, that Cyrus is my uh, anointed one. And uh, in the Greek translation of this, it is my Christ, literally. Oh, wow. um, and yeah. so, and this is because Cyrus conquered Babylon and then allowed the Judahites who had been exiled to return. Um, and this according is who to who we referred to earlier in the show. Right. And so they're like, well, it kind of seems like whoever wrote this section that's very, very different and is looking back on the whole Babylonian exile as something that happened in the past, maybe is referring to Cyrus because they're writing after this all happened. Right. Um, now, and, and a lot of people will, I get accused of this a lot. A lot of people will say, well, that's your anti-supernatural bias. You just don't allow for the possibility of real prophecy. And... That's not what the scholars who developed these theories were doing. Now, I will argue that it is a methodological necessity to reject the possibility of real prophecy if we want to function as scholars at all, mm. because when you say we have to allow for the possibility of real prophecy, there is no circumstance then where you can interrogate or question a claim to real prophecy. Because you, when you say we have to allow for real prophecy, you're saying the normal, critical, scholarly methodologies and frameworks and lenses, we're going to exempt this story right here. They do not apply. Right. But to say anything is not real prophecy requires the imposition of those very frameworks and lenses and methodologies. And so you pick and choose which story gets to be exempt and which does not. And so if you say, well, you have to allow for the possibility that Isaiah really prophesied about Cyrus, but then you turn around and say, well, 
no, Joseph Smith obviously didn't predict the coming of the Civil War. Um, you're imposing historical critical methodologies on one place and you're saying, no, this gets to be exempt in the other place. So whether it's the Book of Mormon or the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran or, uh, you know, anybody else who has claimed to prophecy. Hank Kuhneman talking about uh, Donald Trump being definitely reelected in 2020 or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or even even the the failed prophecies. I mean, the people who say, "Well, this has to be real prophecy," make excuses for failed prophecy. And so, even the folks who said, "Yeah, that comet over there, we're going to be riding that thing uh, next week," even those folks, uh, you cannot, you you don't have a way to consistently apply the same approach and wind up at, that's real prophecy, that's fake prophecy. Right. So out of methodological necessity, critical scholarship cannot accept uh, real prophecy, uh, at least in my opinion. Which mm. means that, no, if the text says there's this dude named Cyrus, that text was written after that dude named Cyrus uh, was on the scene. It does certainly seem like uh, an Occam's razor moment, right? Like the simplest uh, explanation for it is clearly that they knew because if even if nothing else, most of the prophecy throughout the Bible that I've encountered, it's not specific like that. It's not. No. It doesn't name names. It says you know a great, and it's usually metaphor, right? It's usually like a a giant uh, statue is erected, and it has you know blah 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 for feet, and it has blah blah yeah. gold for head or whatever it is. <laughs> It's not. It's not being. It's not saying. And the head, the gold head is Julius Caesar. And the the. the it's not because, uh, you, you, prophecy isn't specific, in in yeah. that way. It's not name and names. Yeah. Unless and, it's and, about. Unless it's about like two weeks from now or whatever. <laughs> and and you see this in in all of the the different ways that attempts at prognostication and prophecy manifest. They're always vague. Yeah. Uh, the palm readers who will say, like, I, I'm sensing the letter M. <laughs> oh, I live on Maple Street. That's the one. Um, there so, you go. Boom. Uh, or, yeah, you you have a lot of, of vagaries, but it's, <laughs> it's like it was the guy Cyrus, specifically Cyrus the Great, the first one, the Persian. He was in, <laughs> um, that's specific enough that uh, it's not even claiming to be prophecy. Right. It is just saying, hey, Cyrus, my anointed one, he did this thing for me. Um, and he's and and so it's it's not even claiming to be prophecy at that point. And so when you gather up all the data, and and there are a number of other things. There are uh Aramaic uh loan words in the book of Isaiah, and um the Judahites picked up Aramaic, including the Aramaic script, while they were exilees in Babylon. So when you have Aramaic loan words in the text, uh, or at least a higher concentration of them, uh, that indicates this text was written in when they were in much closer proximity to the use of that language. Uh, that All of this combines to make it far more likely that Isaiah 40 through 55, at least, uh, were probably composed uh, after the Babylonian exile. Most scholars would say somewhere around 520 BCE, so after the return, right around the time that the second temple is being rebuilt, is probably when you have the first layers of Deutero-Isaiah being produced. And then Trito or third Isaiah 
uh, is coming even later than that, probably in the Persian period. Is but, there any theory as to why these were tacked onto Isaiah rather than just presented as, as their own uh, as their own books? Well, there are lots of theories um, because since the late 20th century, there's been a big concern for trying to drill deeper because a lot of people thought, okay, the real Isaiah wrote Isaiah 1 through 39, and then the next guy came through and wrote 40 through 55, and then somebody later on came through and wrote 56 to 66. But then scholars are like, well, I don't know about this. Like um, Marvin Sweeney, uh, I think his dissertation and then some of his early work was talking about how Isaiah 1 through 4 fits much better thematically with Deutero-Isaiah. Hmm. And so he was saying, "What we, we've got literary layers still from later periods in first Isaiah. And so there is a, and now scholars are trying to piece together how exactly Deutero-Isaiah um, and first Isaiah and third Isaiah came together. And so there was even a paper published in 1998. I'm Coggins, I believe was the, was the author who's, um, and the paper was, do we even need Deutero-Isaiah or something like that? Like, and the, the argument was if this is not a coherent single source, do do we even need to treat it as as its own segment? Because it seems like parts of uh, Isaiah one through four are probably from the same or even a later author, and then mm. we've got uh, parts of uh, some of the other segments within uh, Isaiah one through thirty nine. And so, you know, some scholars are like, the original Isaiah only wrote these six and a half verses in this one chapter, and that that's kind of on the extreme end. I think most scholars would say the majority. Half to the majority of Isaiah 1 through 39 is probably the work of an 8th century prophet who went by Isaiah. And then as it accumulated more layers and was redacted and you bring in this post-exilic um, work, you have people kind of adding introductions and you have people writing uh, other things into some of the later layers and earlier layers. And, and so it is a very complex, has a very complex compositional history yeah. uh, that scholars are still working on trying to, uh, uh, trying to come to some kind of agreement on. But what the overwhelming majority of scholars agree on is that Isaiah 40 through the end of Isaiah were absolutely not written in the 8th or even the 7th century BCE, but were written much later, and much of Isaiah 1 through 39 was probably written... Um, can later as well. Can you confirm for me? I, you know, I, 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 when I was looking this up, doing a little bit of research, I of course found, um, articles that were, we'll call it skeptical of this claim. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Can you confirm that as the, uh, as gotquestions.org says, the theory of multiple Isaiahs is one example of skepticism from those who want to call into question the Bible as God's inspired word. <laughs> can, can you confirm that it's just uh, scholars trying to uh, to ruin it for all the believers out there? <laughs> so that's a that's a, a value judgment, and right. and that is. Uh, that is making some pretty irresponsible assumptions about where these theories are coming from, because these these don't originate in people who are like the Bible's dumb. Um, you know, this this is not um, Sam. God questions would beg to differ, sir. Yeah. The, these are people who are just 
trying to honestly in, engage with the data they're they're finding in the text, which. Uh, and and we've talked about when we had um, our friend uh, Aaron on to talk about the Star of Bethlehem. You know, he was saying, yeah. "I wanted to know more as a believer. Yeah. I wanted to know more, and I got to the point where I was like, I I can't sustain this uh, this position anymore because I got to know more. Uh, and you know, not there are scholars who who then." Um, Leave the the traditions they grew up with, um, abandon them, and uh, and continue to have uh, a lot of interest in studying this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then there are others who stay in the traditions and treat the uh, treat the text from an emic inside perspective. Hey, this is I consider this to be authoritative literature. I consider this to be important. I use this to guide my life, but I'm also engaging it. Uh, as honestly as I can, because uh, a lot of them feel that that's really the best way to try to apply it is to try to better understand it, even if it means being critical about it. Uh, so, yeah, there's uh, apologists are. I've said this before. Apologists begin with the conclusion in mind, and then right. their goal is just to try to find a way around the data to generate an argument that sounds at least possible to say the data do not make it impossible for me to arrive at the predetermined goal. Now, what critical scholars do is they will allow the data to operate on their own own terms and allow the data to lead them where the data are going. Uh, And that's, those are two very different approaches. One is let's go see where this takes us. The other is this is going to take us here (laughs) And we just need to see how many uh, how many train transfers and uh, right. how many walking routes we have to take to get there. Okay, look, just because the road doesn't lead us there doesn't mean we can <laughs> we can't drive there. We just yeah. got to go off road a little bit. Yeah, and and I, you see this a lot. There there are folks who who will respond to critical scholarship by saying we can make a plausible case. Yeah. It's not impossible. Yeah, and. Tons of things are not impossible. I mean, as uh, Russell's teapot right. uh, shows, there's an awful lot of stuff that's not impossible. And if that's if that's the bar, <laughs> it is underground. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, those, those also, things should be taken seriously. On the other side of it, you know, you talked about how, uh, you know, for the work of critical scholarship, you have to sort of assume uh no, the the prof. You you have to assume that prophecy isn't isn't correct or isn't real and, or, until somebody can demonstrate it. Yeah, but it, that doesn't no mean way. that that's for the work of the scholar. That's right. that, that doesn't mean that you can't have a faith that is that does include prophecy. Oh, absolutely not. I I agree one hundred percent. Anybody can. I mean, you get the meaning and the significance and the utility out of it that's going to make you a better person is going to help make you a, a a more contributing member of society um for a critical scholar i would say there are uh there are boundaries to where we should be going because our our goal is not to say look how awesome the bible is our goal is try to try to use the data to find out 
what we can about where this thing came from, how it came together, how it has been used in the past, what it means to us now. Um, and and I think we have a, a responsibility to point out when it is being used for destructive purposes, to structure power and values and boundaries over and against the interests of, of marginalized and minoritized and oppressed groups. Uh, and, uh, and that's what a, an awful lot of apologetic work is doing, is trying to structure power in favor of certain groups and over and against others. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there are folks, I think, who do a responsible job of allowing for the possibility of real prophecy, but they're not the ones on the internet barking at critical scholars and condemning them and, right. and denigrating their work uh, and denigrating them as people. Uh, and even denying that it's possible for them to have faith or be believers, which is something well, and that I claiming get thrown that at the, me an awful lot. And claiming that the goal of this scholarship is to to uh, to denigrate the the Bible or to or to undermine the belief in yeah. uh, in God's inspired word or whatever. And and I think that's rhetorical prophylaxis. I've used that word a lot. A lot of people are like. What even is rhetorical prophylaxis? Are you talking about a word condom? What are you saying? <laughs> so prophylaxis is is uh, a barrier or a protection against the harmful or the undesirable effects of something. Right. And so a prophylactic is something that um, we have a technical use for. But um, rhetorical prophylaxis is uh, my term for when people use positions uh, or arguments or things like that that have that only exist to uh, deflect away criticism. Yeah. So that is rhetorical prophylaxis because it is a way for someone to dismiss critical scholarship so that it does not hurt their faith. It's not it's not a legitimate uh, claim or concern. It's a fallacy. But if you right. can convince enough people that these people are out to harm your faith, then they will immediately put up a barrier. And yeah. then you have those people have cut off the harmful effects of that critical scholarship uh, through this fallacious ad hominem uh, attack. And I, yeah, I, I get that all every single day, dozens of times every single day. People will comment across social media that I'm trying to destroy the Bible or destroy Christianity or destroy Mormonism or destroy Judaism. <laughs> um, I get accused of that stuff all the time. And you guys, everybody, pay attention. Just because that's what's actually happening and he is destroying those things doesn't mean that's why he's that he's trying to. That's totally different. Uh. All right, friends. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, this Deutero Isaiah thing, I like it. We've referred to it before. Now we all know what it is. I'm, I'm very pleased about that. Dude, bro, Isaiah is another way to um, to I refer feel to like, it. I feel like it's, you know, there's there's got to be something about uh, the Big Lebowski involved in Deutero. Deuterino Isaiah, if yeah, you're not exactly. into the whole brevity thing. That's right. Um, L Deuterino Isaiah. <laughs> Which is now what it's called in my mind forever. You've locked it in. That's solid. All right. Uh, if you would like to become a part of making this show go and get ad-free early access to every episode and as well as access possible access to our after party which is bonus content every week you can do so by going to patreon.com slash data over dogma if you would like to write into us about anything the email address 
is contact at dataoverdogmapod.com. And we'll just see you again next week. Bye, everybody. Data Over Dogma is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. It is a production of Data Over Dogma Media, LLC, copyright 2023, all rights reserved.